Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. If you're feeling a little nervous this morning, well, if you're not feeling nervous, that means you haven't looked at the clock. Uh, if you are feeling nervous, that means you probably have looked at the clock. So here I begin at uh, 11.25. So that ought to instill a little fear in each and every one of us. We've been looking at uh, this message to the church of Ephesus. And so last week we were dealing with this church and we're going to follow up here this morning uh, because it ties in to the things that we are thinking about on this fourth Sunday of Advent in relation to love. And so we began in Revelation chapter 1. We worked our way through with the understanding that this is the revelation of the risen Christ. This is the revelation of... Uh, of the conquering king. This is the apocalypse of uh, the king of kings and the lord of lords. It is a revealing, it is an unveiling. And that's what gives him the authority to speak to his churches because he is lord over all. And this is what he had to say to the angel of the church of Ephesus. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So last week we came to the conclusion, and this is the word of the Lord and it is eternally true. Uh, Last week we came to the conclusion that the shortcomings of the Ephesian church was their abandonment of their first love. They were doing many things correctly and they were faithful. I mean, you know, at first glance, and especially with us today looking at them, we would consider them to be an extremely uh, faithful church. But here we saw that um, they were being reprimanded and rebuked and exhorted and called to repentance by Jesus Christ as the head of the church and over this issue of them abandoning their first love. Notice it says that they left their first love. 
Now, that carries the meaning of abandonment or sending something away. And however this transpired, either through neglect or decay or coldness or bitterness or discontent or disobedience or any of a number of causes and reasons, it is stated in a deliberate sense. They left. They abandoned their first love. They were still standing for truth very zealously. They were doing many things correctly, but they had abandoned their first love. So last week we pointed out the significance of them leaving their first love, even though to us it seems like a minor problem, doesn't it? It really seems insignificant that Jesus' warning to them would be that he would remove them. Notice, it wasn't just simply that Jesus was going to go off in a corner and let them be. No, he said that he would remove them from him. So it's a serious problem. And that our our, um, viewing this as being insignificant only reveals our own shortcomings in this area. But what they abandoned, as we saw last week, was the highest virtue of Christ. The highest virtue of God. The highest virtue of Christianity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, remember, we looked at this last week, and now abides faith, hope, and love. These three. Paul is not saying that faith is insignificant. He's not saying that hope is insignificant. When he says, and now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. He is only emphasizing that everything flows from this love. The greatest of these is love. First of all, I want us to consider love here this morning. He says that they had lost their first love, and so I want us to contemplate the idea of whether we have lost our first love and come to an understanding of this love that we are talking about. If love is the greatest of Christian virtues, if it is greater than faith, and if it's greater than hope, it's very important that we have an understanding of it to know what they had abandoned so that we don't abandon it, and if we have abandoned it, that we would rekindle this love in our hearts and lives. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul ends that chapter by saying, and now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love, he began by saying this in verse number 1, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Again, Paul is not denying these things as being good. He's just saying that without love, they are meaningless. 
because everything flows out of love. We say we have faith, but we don't have love. That's a meaningless faith. We say we have hope, but we don't have love. That is a meaningless hope because it flows from love. And here we see even the acts, the actions of faith and hope. Here in these first three verses of 1 Corinthians, Paul said that they are meaningless and they're worthless and they are useless if it's not in love. See, first of all, we see that even giftedness and talent and ability is meaningless. Eloquence, if I had, if I spoke with the language, the tongue of men and of angels. You see, giftedness, talent, ability, eloquence is meaningless without love. It's just a lot of noise. It's white noise, it's irritating noise, it's clanging and banging. And, that's, and so it's meaningless, it means it's ineffective. It's without effect or without positive effect. Actually, all of those things that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 13, which can be good things, He said that they are without positive effect and actually they have negative effect. Truth without love is ineffective. Jesus said in John 13, by this all will know that you are my disciples. Simply just by telling them, proclaiming it with words and eloquence, the tongues of men and of angels. Is that what he said? No. What he said was this, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if you proclaim the truth, but there is not love, it's not effective. It's ineffective. Knowledge or great feats of faith are not the essence of greatness or effectiveness. You see, good works and self-sacrifice without love does not profit. Truth without love is ineffective. It's without profit. It ends up making the truth meaningless. So what is love? First, we're not talking about fallen love here. We're not talking about the love that comes from the sinful nature. When we talk about the church here in Ephesus leaving their first love, or when we talk about love here in 1 Corinthians 13, we are not talking about that which comes from Adam, that which is sinful, that which is fallen, that which is according to the flesh. No, we're not talking about the love of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says in verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit. 
So there's something different about this love that he just commanded them to walk in, right? That's why he says, walk in the spirit. Don't walk in that of the flesh where you're biting and devouring one another. No, you are to walk in love and through love serve one another. And that is only in the spirit. So he says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So love does not come from the flesh. Not the love we're talking about here. Not true love, but from the spirit. Therefore, we are to walk in the spirit, which is one meaning of the statement is that we are to walk in divine love. Walk in the spirit. Walk in divine love. Don't walk in the flesh, human love. You see, that is where true love originates, is with God. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. It comes from God. So if, you, so if we have love that does not come from God, then it's not really love, right? We can call all kinds of different things whatever we want to, but it doesn't mean that it's real. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So the love we find expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that word which was given by inspiration to Paul, reveals to us God. It reveals to us the love of God, and it reveals to us the love that comes from God. Therefore, it is divine love. And notice what Paul says about this divine love in verse number 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So the very first thing about divine love is it is long-suffering. Love, true love, the love that comes from God is patient and enduring. This was revealed in the books of the law. Exodus 34 and verse 6, the Lord passed before him, talking about Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Numbers 14, verse 18, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. The psalmist declares in chapter 86 and verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion, gracious, and long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. Isn't this what is revealed unto us in the New Testament? That it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance? 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the Lord is willing to suffer long 
for the salvation of sinners. Long-suffering, that's what true love is. It's long-suffering. It suffers long. It's willing to suffer for a long period of time. We can't even endure for just a few minutes. And our nerves are on edge. Our tongue becomes sharp. We start letting it all out. But the Lord is long-suffering. He suffers for a long time. Think of how aggravated God is with man and the wickedness of man. And how angry he is with, the, with wickedness, but yet he suffers it a long time. Peter also declares this, consider the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. You see, he's willing to suffer long for the salvation of sinners. How long are you willing to suffer for, for the salvation of sinners? We see the example of Jesus. He humbled himself, came in the form of a man. And why did he come in his first advent? We call it his humiliation. The second person in the Trinity, the eternal and unchanging God, lowered himself, humbled himself, came in the form of humanity. We call it the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Remember we mentioned that earlier, the humiliation and passion of Christ. Why? Because he came to suffer. He took all of our sins upon himself and he suffered great agony and death in the form of a man. Why? Because he is willing to suffer long. For sinners. Consider the example of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, but, we, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. And listen to this. I mean, listen to this statement. In much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things, willing to suffer everything, all costs. For what? Others. The salvation of sinners. The reconciliation of sinners. You see, this is divine love. It's a love that is not easily angered. And even in anger, is long-suffering. It's a love that is not easily frustrated, but even in frustration, it is long-suffering. But rather, it is a love that patiently endures trials and difficulties. According to Paul, 
of every kind, even unto death. And then secondly, it's identified as kindness, this kind of love. The love of God, the love that comes from God, is kindness. Notice in Titus chapter 3, of course, Paul does this a lot. He starts with us in our humanity. And he says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That was our condition. Our condition was just the same as the human condition throughout all time. That is a description of fallen man. But then he says this in verse 4, But when, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, So we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But yet even in the midst of that, and even with man as that, God demonstrates kindness and love in sending Jesus Christ so that we might receive of this kindness and love of God, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because he just described us. It wasn't righteous. But according to God's mercy, see, kindness and mercy, they go together. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us abundantly. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, we also find this in Ephesians chapter 2. And again, Paul starts off, We were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now who works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, filling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just as others. And Paul does it again, right? In verse 4 again. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, divine love, true love, this love that is of God is characterized by true benevolence and a desire to do good to others. You see, that was God's desire. Even in the midst of man's sinfulness, It was his desire to do good unto man. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. It was a desire. Love in kindness is a desire to do good to others. And love actively seeks opportunities to show kindness and compassion. God went out of his way. 
It was out of his way, right? He was divine, and he went out of his way into the form of a man to show his kindness unto us. Surely his merciful kindness is great to us and something that we should praise the Lord for. And then notice, he says, all these others are stated in the positive, but then he says that it does not envy. Love doesn't envy. This is stated in the negative, right? Thou shalt not envy. Love does not envy. Love is not jealous. It's not covetousness. It's not sinful. Love does not transgress. Because that's what envy is, right? It is a transgression. Someone else has something and you want what they have. You want to transgress them. It's the reason why Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, because love does not transgress. Jesus also said there will be those who will want heaven opened up to them. But Jesus will say to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? See, love doesn't transgress. It doesn't envy. Therefore, love does not seek the loss of others, the disadvantage of others, or the failure of others. Love rejoices in the well-being and success of others without harboring any resentment. That's why when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul was going through that list of long-suffering aspects, one of the things that he said was, as poor, yet making many rich. See, it, wasn't, it, it doesn't envy. True love doesn't envy. They didn't want their things. So they exist and they suffer long in poverty so that others can be rich, rich in the mercy and grace of Christ. So he says, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. And this is the example that Jesus shows us in the divine love that came down from God through him to the world. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And then notice, Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It's not full of pride. It's not arrogant and boastful, right? We are told in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, he's our example, right? Because he is love manifested in the flesh. He is love manifested in a fallen world. So let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death 
to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, this goes along with what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. Jesus said, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. True love is humble. True love is in humility, not pride and arrogance. Love focuses on others rather than seeking attention or self-promotion. Why? Because love is sacrificial. We are told to let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself, according to Paul in in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. And then notice, love does not behave rudely. In other words, love is polite and considerate in its interactions. (laughs) It's something you don't find much of in the world today, but it is courteous. It's civil. It's polite. We are told to let our speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that we may know how to answer each one. We're also told by Paul, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. You see, love shows respect and courtesy to others. And so Paul, uh, Peter also writes that we are to be of one mind, having compassion for one another, loving as brethren, being tenderhearted, courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that we were called to this, that we might inherit a blessing. In other words, we're to act rightly and respond rightly by suffering long in this divine love. And then love does not seek its own. Again, it is not arrogant and pride, but it seeks the well-being of others. It is sacrificial. It puts others above their own personal desires. And then notice he also says, love is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It's not easily angered. It doesn't hold on to grudges or think ill of others. Love is forgiving and chooses to think the best of others and treat others in the best of ways, if at all possible. Remember that saying that we are to live peaceably with all men, if at all possible. So we got to dig deep for that if at all possible. So love is not provoked. It doesn't think any evil. You see, Solomon says this, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. That is Jesus Christ. And that is the divine love that was sent unto us. So therefore, let us not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoice in the truth of true love, which is Jesus Christ, the love of God that was manifested and demonstrated in the flesh. This love that came 
to bear all things. And Jesus Christ came and bore all of our sin. So therefore, let us have that divine love that believes all things, that hopes all things and endures all things, and that never fails because it is the love of Christ that has been not only demonstrated, but has been given unto us. You see, this is the divine love that we are called to have. Therefore, if we could recover this divine love, if we would repent, as is said here to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, that if we would remember from where we have fallen, we've left our first love. And then repent and do the first works. We would have unity and fellowship. We would be a true witness to the world. We would have, uh, we'd be on mission and evangelistic. There would be forgiveness and reconciliation. There would be servanthood and humility restored in the church once again in the likeness of Christ. And for individual members, they would find their identity in Christ and they'd have transformed character, this character that is uh, uh, rooted in divine love. And therefore, we'd be resilient in trials and we would be purposeful in our living. So, what we find here is the centrality of love, of divine love in the church. They were doing everything right, but they were doing it without love. And for that, Jesus called them on the carpet. He commanded that they repent and be restored in fellowship to him. And how were they going to be restored in that fellowship to him? Through divine love. Because it was divine love that sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God commended his love toward us. That's the starting point of everything. God commended his, lo- God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... Remember, that's what Paul was saying. Yeah, we were all this and this and this and this and this, wicked, horrible, terrible sinners, but God. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's that divine love that our lives, and we are called in our lives to be saturated with, A love that mirrors the divine love that is manifested in the incarnation, redemption, and personal transformation that comes from it. And as believers, we are to receive it, and we are to give it. If we are recipients of God's love, then we are to be givers of God's love. Because to whom much is given, much is required. The Christian life, therefore, is a response to the overwhelming and unconditional love of God that has brought us into fellowship with him. And therefore, everything that we do is to be rooted in love because God is love. 
Everything else should be an outflowing and outworking of that love that he has given to us. Father, we thank you for loving us. Loving us when we were so unworthy. Loving us even though we were so ugly and wicked and nasty. So sinful. Full of iniquity. Full of hatred. Full of envy. Full of impurity. Full of corruption. But yet you loved us anyway. And Father, we thank you for that love that was demonstrated and shown unto us through Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to that love. He is the life of that love, and he is the truth of that love. And we pray that you would help us. In all the blessings that we have received from you, the first of all being recipients of love, which is another way of saying grace and mercy and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation, we have been recipients of that love. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in that love and to be givers of the divine love that we have been given. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.